You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together, so let's get to it. This week's topic, Keys to Developing a Well-Constructed Range. Hey Dell, how's it going this week? Uh, it's going fantastic. I have a friend, one I promised I'd mention his name. So his name is Elliot Martinez. He plays poker and we're always having this debate over what type of hands you should be playing. And he, he loves to play hands that, from my perspective, make no sense. And just as an example, let's say eight, five off. Sure. And I keep trying to explain to him that he plays live. He doesn't play online. And I keep trying to explain to him that over time, that hand is going to lose money. But his big thing is, you know, well, you got to play these hands to stay deceptive so people don't always know what you're playing. And he's not right. (laughs) He's not right. So the thing is that with a well-constructed range, you will have deception built into your range and you can play hands with much better post-flop playability. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm kind of excited about it because every podcast we have just about, we mention that it starts with a well-constructed range. How are you doing today, BJ? I'm doing well. A spoiler alert, we will be talking about balance towards the end of this podcast. And balance does not mean having an equal amount of good stuff and an equal amount of absolute crap. That is not balance. It looks like that's what your friend Elliot Martinez thinks balance is. But yeah, he's wrong. We'll talk about that. I'm doing pretty well. My week has been exciting. I've been making the transition from my old job, getting things ready for my new job. I created a document for my coworkers. Pretty much, if you're familiar with office space, there's the line, what would you say you do here? And I had to write down a two or three page document about all the things I do, how I do them, what resources I use, who I talk to, what meetings I own, what relationships I've cultivated, who I speak to and why, all these things to help make the smooth transition of my departure. And as I'm writing this stuff down, I'm thinking, oh my goodness. I do a lot. You know, I never realized how much I do. And we're actually going to talk to this a bit in the podcast too. We get to this notion of unconscious competence. You know, you have like conscious competence, unconscious incompetence. It's a spectrum. And once you get to the point where you know what you're doing and it's locked in, you don't have to think about it that much. You are defaulted and having those defaulted lines will help you in future streets. And I won't lie, as I'm writing all this stuff down about what I do at work, I'm thinking about this unconscious competence model and thinking, wow, we're probably going to talk about this when we talk about range construction. Yeah, it's been a good week. All right. So yeah, we want to talk about range construction. Mm -hmm. Finally, it's about darn time, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is. So I want to give like, first of all, I want to give my opinion of what a well-constructed range should be like. And these are my thoughts on it. And then we're going to go into a process about it. Obviously, we'll discuss the problem, the solution, and try to give you tools or exercises to use in order to fix those problems. But my thought on a well-constructed range is this. What tends to happen is we have that range that when we first sit down, this is our range. Or this is what somebody who's memorized a range chart or has read a book that has range charts in them or maybe even done some study and they have a range when they sit down. And then we talk about deviation ranges and we tend to think about positional ranges and stuff like that. And I tend to think about my range as one whole range. 
So what happens, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be using a portion of my range. And it is probably the, the standard part of my range whenever I go into a poker room and I sit down. And yeah, I have a deviation range. Well, I really just think of that as my range. And I, there are certain criteria that needs to be met before I can use that portion of my range. And we'll go over some of the criteria that I have and everybody will be a little different. So when I think about it, I don't think necessarily like uh, having 20 different ranges. I have my range and that range is going to expand and contract based on factors such as stack size, position, opponent aggression, my skill level in handling those hands post-flop and stuff like that. All that ties into a well-constructed range. It's not just a matter of, I don't have to be thinking like every time I think down, how many different ranges do I need to add? I've got one overall range, and I've just got different criteria for different hands in that range for given moments. Well, I think it's interesting that you pointed out your thought process and your criteria. You had mentioned we want to propose a problem and offer solutions Mm -hmm. and give tools. So let me abstract a little from your example and bring it to the higher level of how are we going to bring this to everybody? Because we're not going to give you answers. We're not going to give the listeners answers. We're going to give you a framework to develop your own answers. I did a Google search this week. I looked on YouTube and it took me forever to find some decent resources about why certain hands should be in your range or how do you go about creating a range? So that's really the problem we're trying to solve. The problem we're trying to solve is that a well-constructed range forms the basis for all of your solid play on later streets. But how do you do that? We'll introduce a framework for how to do that. Now, the problem with just playing any cards or even having what you think might be a well-constructed range, but it's not really, is that you could make all the right decisions on the flop, turn, and river and still lose because you were doomed to fail at the start you should have never been in the hand. So by making those better decisions pre-flop, you free yourself up for more cognitive demanding decisions later. Otherwise, absent those spots, You're giving yourself more default lines to make it easier for you to avoid traps and to avoid mistakes later on. So we're going to provide a systematized process where you can construct your own ranges. You can look on range charts. You can find range charts on Google and YouTube, and you can follow those if you want to be spoon-fed. They may not work for you. Your mileage may vary. Like what Dell said, it depends on your situation. What are your financial resources? What's your bankroll? What are the effective stack sizes? How is your comfort level at playing at your specific field? Dell had mentioned he has ranges, and then he will deviate based on these different criteria. How do you even know from what basis to deviate if you don't have a solid foundation? Here's a golf analogy, because I play golf, and for all you golfers out there, you'll know this. Most of the time, you want to hit the ball straight. Most of the time. Sometimes you want to draw it which means you want it to go straight and then go slightly left, kind of like curve it. Sometimes you want to fade it, go straight, and then slightly right. Sometimes you want to do a punch hook or a punch slice. You aren't going to be able to architect those shots if you don't already know how to hit the straight ball. If you don't know what your default ranges are in early, late, mid position, whatever, how will you know how to deviate? So for me, I broke the framework down into two steps. The first is Poker Range Construction 101. Everybody knows this stuff. And then I'll talk about some more advanced questions you need to ask yourself 
to figure out your own ranges. The 101 stuff, the thing everybody knows. You play tighter in earlier position and you widen up in later position. Everybody's heard this. I'm not really sure everyone's heard the reasons why. So typically the reason you want to open up earlier tighter is because there are more people left to act behind you. And with more people left to act after you do, remember, we don't advise limping. So if you're going to open raise from early position, you need to understand that you're going to have to do so with hands that have more raw equity and can withstand being called. If you open up under the gun with 8-3 offsuit, anyone who calls you is likely to have a stronger range than you. Now you're out of position against a player who likely has range advantage. How profitable do you think that position is going to be? Not very. On the converse side, when you're in later position and everyone has either folded or limped to you on the button, they're capped. They're likely not to have the strongest ranges. And so you are more likely to open wider because you don't need as much raw equity. You can exchange positional power for some raw equity. The fact that you are last to act, or if not last on the button, you are later to act Poker is a game of incomplete information, and the fact that you are seeing what your opponents do before it's your turn gives you so much more maneuverability to manufacture EV in the case that you missed flops, and you can extract max value in ways that you can't when you're out of position. So that's one of the Poker Range 101 things. The other thing I want to mention is the gap principle. That's pretty much everyone's heard of it. You need a stronger hand to call than you would to open raise yourself. And that's because if you are calling someone else's open raise, you need to consider they're already stronger than what they would have been had they limped to you. So you might be willing to open jack nine suited in middle or late position. Depending on your resources or your situation, you might not want to call with jack nine suited because you have to figure the under the gun position open with a stronger range, you're likely behind. Could you exchange enough positional advantage for the raw equity? Possibly. But again, this gets to your mileage may vary based on your resources, your level experience, effective stack sizes, all those criteria Dell mentioned in his example. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that you've shared there that I want to address. And the first one is that everybody does know that you're supposed to open tighter in early position and, and wider in late position. But so few people actually do it. Good point. Good point. (laughs) So, you know, the problem that lies in there is that they decide they want to play a hand and they don't really think about where they are in relationship to the other players. Because there's one thing that BJ didn't mention, and that is that with more people left to act, there's more opportunities for somebody to wake up with a hand that they can three bet. And you don't want to be opening up under the gun with a range that's going to have to fold over and over and over again. All you're doing is burning money. So you need to be able to not just withstand a call, you need to be able to withstand the possibility of a three bet. So when we get three bet, there's always a portion of our range we're going to fold, even from under the gun. But the reality is, is most of our range from under the gun should be able to withstand a three bet from any position. And if it can't, we're opening too wide there. So that's one thing. The other thing is, BJ mentioned you need a stronger range to call a raise. You don't always need a stronger range to three bet, (laughs) you know? And so there's other options here to look into when we're looking at our range and why we have hands in our range. Because if we three bet, we still want that hand 
to usually be able to withstand a call. We want to be three betting with hands that, yeah, we'd love to take it down right now, but we want that hand to be able to feel all right if we get called. We want to know that it has good post-flop playability with our uncapped range in position going to the flop. So that's things to consider, like when you're adding hands in. So, yeah, we're talking about those couple of one-on-one things, and everybody should know them. So few do. Don't be the ones that don't do it. Right. And I imagine at some point we'll do another podcast specifically about three betting because there's a lot of nuance to three betting. But you're right about being able to open under the gun and withstand a three bet. I can't tell you how many times I've been in later position, have three bet an under the gun razor, and they either insta fold or they shove over the top. They insta fold because they don't have aces or kings. And then they shove over the top because they do have aces or kings. Of course, when they do, they're getting minimum EV from me because I'm folding, but that's beside the point. Listen to our last week's episode to hear more about that. You don't always have to withstand a three bet. You can fold, but the fact is you do need to think about those things. And that's something we'll cover in a later podcast, you know, three betting. In terms of the range construction, higher level stuff, the 201, the 301 material, this is where you need to ask yourself these questions. We'll give you the questions to ask, but we can't answer them for you. The questions you need to ask that aren't involved in the hands involve your actual situation. What do your finances look like? What's your bankroll? Could you withstand high variance? There will always be variance in the game. Can you withstand high variance? We did a podcast several weeks ago where I laid out the fact that in 60 cases where you have aces, you could very well lose five out of six times. Can you withstand that? If you can't withstand getting your aces cracked five out of six times, you might need to tighten your range or play lower stakes. But that gets to your financial and resources situation. You need to figure out how comfortable you are playing your hands in your field. How well do you know these players? If you know these players, you might be deviating on some kind of subconscious level that you need to make more routine and actually write these down. This is your range, and this is why you're deviating from it. You also need to understand effective stack sizes. You cannot play the same with 50 big blinds as you can with 500 big blinds. And we had talked about some of the factors behind suited connectors, suited gappers, set mining with low pocket pairs. We have talked about those in previous episodes. They don't always hit. And if they don't always hit, what are you going to do? Just bail? You can only bail so often before you go broke again, gets back to your financial resources. So yeah, like I think that one of the things that happens when you're addressing these, and I'm, I'm going to mention a couple of questions. I did ask BJ to bring up all the framework, but I'm going to bring out a couple right now because I think it ties directly to what he's saying. You know, when we look at our resources and we look at, you know, our meta state and whether we can handle certain things with a particular hand in our range, that goes to one of the key questions we want to ask was, should this hand be in my range? And the question is, is why? And I'm going to be honest with you. The ultimate answer to why or why not is whether or not it's plus EV or not plus EV. But there's other little questions within that question. Why is it plus EV? Why is it not plus EV? Maybe it's plus EV, but I can't have it in my range because it's going to lead to a lot of high variant situations that my bankroll can't handle. Maybe it's not my range because I don't feel I have the skills to do it. So the next question for that would have to be, what do I got to do to get those skills to be able to have that hand in my range if it's plus EV? 
And all these things tie to different things. Like literally the most important thing in determining what hands are going to be in your range is going to be position. But right after that is going to be stack size. So that's one question you're always going to be asking yourself at the table. What is the stack size of that person who just open raised? Or what is the stack size of the people I expect to call me here? And is this hand profitable at that stack size? That is so important that it's a key question we ask every time we're at the table when we're thinking about what hands are going to be in our range that night at that table at that moment. I'm glad you mentioned stack sizes. I have often looked at my cards and seen a smaller mid-pocket pair and instinctively wanted to call. And then I look at the opponent's stack size and I fold. I realize there's not enough behind to make that move playable. It's not profitable. So why would I put myself in a knowingly compromised position when I can just let it go and wait for another hand? I'm glad you brought that point up. So when we talk about whether our hand should be in this range, it gets easy at the extremes. And then like every time I've ever made a taco or burrito, it gets really messy in the middle. I am physically incapable of rolling a burrito in such a way that I don't overload it and it falls apart as soon as I bite into it. I don't know what my problem is, but we're talking about the messy middle here. Do you want to play aces? Yeah, you pretty much always want to play aces. Do you want to play seven deuce off or eight three off if you're Elliot? No, you don't. Like Del mentioned before, it's going to, you're going to lose so much money over time. You might remember those one, two, or three times when seven deuce off smashed the flop and you got paid off by some fool who wasn't paying attention. And then you forget, you conveniently forget all those times when you called and then had a bail. Confirmation bias is a real thing. I'll say that. But we're talking about the messy middle. Does this hand belong in my range because it has value? When we talk about value, we're talking about topside equity, the strongest holdings in your range, particularly that can connect meaningfully with the flop. Now, all these questions get tricky when you go down pocket pairs. Do you want to play aces? Yeah, of course. Do you want to play kings? Yeah, of course. Do you want to play queens? Likely, yes. Do you want to play jacks? I'm surprised at how many people hate pocket jacks, and they always complain how jacks are so hard to play. They're not hard to play. If you have a reason behind including jacks in your range, and then the flop comes in a way that is incongruent with the reasons for which you put jacks in your range, then feel comfortable folding. That's all you need to do. If you have a reason for every hand that's in your range, and then that reason doesn't bear out on the flop or the turn or the river, Get rid of it. Don't worry about it. Your ability to tell a consistent story through the hand, your ability to avoid the myth of pre and post flop play, your ability to maximize EV or manufacture EV. Listen to our previous episodes. These all kind of blend together. Playing jacks is not hard if you have a reason. Now, what about tens? What about nines? What about eights? That's where it gets tricky. And this is where you need to ask yourself these questions about why I'm putting this in my range. One of those reasons is for value. And I know we have some other reasons. Do you want to talk about those, Dell? Yeah, I do. So for one thing, I want to address the whole notion of jacks being hard for some people to play. Because you said it, you have to be comfortable folding it when the time is right. Any pair is easy to play. It really is. If you have the skill to fold when you need to. This here's the problem. Like it's easy for somebody to fold twos when the flop comes out because the reality is most flops, twos are missing. And now they're not looking so good. It's hard for twos to realize their equity. The problem people have with jacks is it feels like it should be a big hand, but it's not quite. It's not really quite a, a small hand, but it ain't quite a big hand. And people just hate to fold it. The reality is, is you're ahead pre-flop most of the time. 
play the hand. Be okay with folding it when the time comes to fold. I think that's part of it. So when we look at it, and like BJ said, we are going to ask a question like, why is this hand going to be in my range? And there's different reasons, you know. A lot of them overlap, all right? First of all, every hand is in our range for value. But the value can be different. Like if we have wheel aces, suited wheel aces in our range, and we're talking about having a pulled ring, well, a lot of people automatically go to the notion that those are bluffs, right? When they look at it, they think of it as bluff. Well, we don't really think of it at, at the blind stealing the blinds as a bluff, all right? Because that hand has good post-flop playability. There are a lot of lines we can take to win post-flop. So we don't see it as a bluff pre-flop. We look at that and we say to ourselves that that is a hand that is giving us value protection. It's protecting the, the top end of our range. It's protecting our aces and kings and queens to make sure they get paid. Plus, it has the ability to overrealize its own equity post-flop by the fact that we can take so many different lines to win with that. Another value that's important to have in a well-constructed range is board coverage. Now, I'm going to go back to both these in a second, but right now, let's pretend that we're at a table where we're playing against other thinking players that are paying attention. Well, board coverage is going to be important because if you don't have board coverage, what's going to happen is every time you have ace-king or ace-queen or ace-jack and the board comes out all low cards, your opponents are going to be able to just take chips from you over and over and over again. You have to have some board coverage. Well, the wheel gives you a little bit of board coverage, but not a lot. The five qualifies as board coverage, really, but that ace really doesn't. You know, maybe on some runouts, it, it gets you to complete a straight, but never the nut straight. So it doesn't really give you complete board coverage. And that's where suited connectors and some suited gappers can come in. So these hands are important to put in our range under certain conditions. And there's a couple of criteria that need to be met. One, are the stack depths high enough to be able to add these hands in profitably? We're not playing suited connectors at 75 big blinds deep. Even 100 depends on the game dynamics. There are times in a 100 big blind deep game, I'm not playing them. Only in late position. Most positions, I'm not playing them. When we get up to 200, 300 big blinds deep, these become very valuable hands. They give us the board coverage we need. They become profitable hands to play. And we can take and play them in such a way that also gives us plenty of lines post-flop. They have good post-flop playability. Are we going to have, are we going to have broadways in? Well, that most people, that's a no-brainer, but there are times that, that people have broadways in their range from a position that they shouldn't. An unsuited broadway from under the gun, really not a great hand to have. So I think that you can go down through this and you can break down every one of them. And I got to add one more thing on suited connectors and wheel aces and hands like that. You don't need these hands at a table where nobody's paying attention. So that's one more thing that goes into determining what range we're going to use on a given night. It's a matter of how wide is that range going to be on a given night in a given play. If nobody's paying attention, I don't need board coverage. I don't need a pulled range. I don't need a merged range. I can deal with a nice linear range and take everybody to value tap. But when you need it, you need those things. The process really boils down to these four steps. The first one is understanding your meta situation, your finances, your resources, your bankroll, effective stack sizes, things like that. These are things surrounding the cards, but not involving the cards themselves. The second part is to add hands progressively into your range based on the things that we're talking about, like value, value protection, board coverage, 
comfort level. And then you need to subtract those hands. You need to subtract some hands out. For example, Dell and I, before we had the podcast, we were talking about the merits of King 8 suited. Does King 8 suited provide good board coverage? Possibly. But before you need to think about that, are there better hands that do a better job of board coverage than King 8? Your purpose in putting these hands in your range is to meet a goal. If your goal is board coverage, there are better candidates than King 8 suited that serve that purpose. 10-8 suited, 9-8 suited, 8-7 suited. So maybe you want to include those hands before you include King-8. But this gets into the whole dynamic thing of adding hands in, removing hands out, and then once you have that range, the fourth step is deviating in-game. With effective stack sizes, I'm not going to be playing suited connectors, suited gappers. I might not even be playing smaller pocket pairs in the hopes of set mining because the effective stack sizes aren't there to make those plays profitable. But again, you can't deviate until you have a baseline. And we're giving you the framework to establish your personal baseline. So let's go back to Elliot for a minute. I need people to understand. I really like Elliot's. I don't want to disparage him in any way. I know that he plays in a game that has a couple people who say they're professional poker players, and they very well might be. I don't know them. I don't play in that game. They might be. And he loves to get under these guys' skins, and a couple of them won't even play him because he is difficult to predict what he has. I don't deny that it'll be difficult to predict what Elliot has, but I think Elliot could have a different range construction with hands that have better post-flop playability. And oh, by the way, he would still have the deception because, listen, you're under the gun and you're opening queens plus and ace king. If you throw ace five in there, you have enough deception from under the gun that people are going to have to say, well, remember that time he showed down ace five with two pair aces and fives. I know he's got ace five in there. He probably plays every suited ace from there. It happens. That's the way people tend to think about it. They don't tend to think he's got this one hand in there just for a pulled range. So you have deception built into a well-constructed range. So things like suited connectors and one gappers that fit in with everything else, all of a sudden you have the deception because you are not now just playing every good hand. Every hand in your range should be good for value in some way or another. It should all be plus EV. But what I mean is you're not playing the hands that everybody else says, oh, they only play good hands. When people are thinking that way, they're thinking queens plus, jacks plus kind of thought process. You can have that deception. You can literally have everything. Okay, there's nothing you don't have to have. All right, this notion that I have to play seven deuce off so people think I'm a crazy player. No, no, you can have a good, well-constructed range and people would still think you're crazy just by the actions you take pre-flop. So what we want to accomplish here is we want people to stop just taking the charts and living by the charts. Here's the problem agreed, with Agreed, agreed. Yeah, here's the problem with range charts. Range charts are always a good start, by the way. They're not, it's not that they're a bad thing. They're always a good start. But if you live by the range charts, you have no creativity in your game or very little. In order to develop that creativity, you need a well-constructed range that has the ability to mold to the situation that you're in for a given night at a given table for given opponents. Therefore, the well-constructed range is much better than range charts that you try to memorize. Yeah, agreed, agreed. We talked at the start about balance and how Elliot playing 8-3 off is an inappropriate application of balance. Balance isn't just having random crap mixed in with your value. Balance is protecting you from exploitation. Like Dell mentioned, the ace-five suited. 
it's not that wide of a deviation, but the fact that it's not Queens Plus and Ace King Plus, your opponents will remember, again, confirmation bias. They will look at that time that you smashed Ace-5 on an Ace-5-7 flop and took it down. They're like, wow, this guy's not as tight as I thought he was. Balance protects you from being exploited. If you only ever bet on flops that thinking players know you would never connect with, you're going to get exploited. If you only ever bet when you have it, you're going to get exploited. I feel like Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck if. <laughs> yeah. Your bluffs shouldn't just be stone cold bluffs. Okay, maybe every once in a while, a stone cold bluff, I personally wouldn't do that. I would take a bluff that's well constructed in terms of the story of the hand all the way through the streets. If you start with hands that have semi-bluff potential, that means they're bluffs that have the potential of becoming the best hand. That's not really a stone cold bluff. That still has equity. That still has some value. And again, it's not balanced just because I'm not playing 8-3 off suit. I might play 10-7 suited, a double gapper, because of the game dynamics, the opponent, my position, my comfort level in outplaying people post-flop. Again, I have a reason for including that hand in my range, in this case, a deviation range. Several times I have been told at 1-3, I have no idea what you have. That's kind of the point. Thank you, opponent. You don't know what I have. I know what I have. I have a well-constructed range. The fact that my range is well-constructed doesn't mean you can deduce everything in my holdings because I will play things differently based on the flop, based on board coverage, based on board texture, based on effective stack sizes, based on player profiles. I love it. It's like the highest compliment I can ever receive at the poker table when someone tells me, I can't figure out what you have. That's the point. And that is what we're trying to give our listeners is a framework to develop your own inscrutable but solid ranges. So here's the thing. We promise you a framework and we've actually talked through the whole framework. So I do know that BJ does a great job of making sure that this stuff goes part of our show notes. It's going to be taken care of. You're going to be able to write down this framework. And the thing is, you don't have to have this professional perfect range. There are no perfect ranges. The reason there's no perfect ranges is the only thing in poker that's been solved so far is heads up play preflop. And everything else is still tied to the fact that we're all human beings. The moment you remove computers and we start making decisions, there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be ways to exploit. Your range doesn't have to be perfect, basically. And start with the range chart. Go ahead. But then say to yourself, which hands on this range chart haven't worked for me? What hands might work for me that aren't on this chart and start developing the critical thinking needed to be a superior poker player. I'll tell you this right now. It doesn't just stop at poker. If you develop those critical thinking skills, if you develop your whole thought process, it goes out into the real world too. You find yourself able to take in and just be a better human being and a better, more effective person all around. If you start playing with intentionality, you'll find yourself that you start living with intentionality. We laid out the framework. I think we laid out the tools. The tools are relatively simple. Brain charts. Start with one that you find online, whittle it down, adjust it to meet your own personal circumstances, and ask yourself those questions that we laid out in the podcast. Figure out why these hands are in your range. What purposes do they serve? If you start doing this intentionally, you will be on a solid foot. It might not be perfect. It doesn't need to be. 
live, adjust, adapt. And you do that in life too. Yeah. It, it amazes me. This isn't the first time that we've mentioned that you can live a better life by being a better poker player. And by being a better poker player, you become better at life. It's a microcosm that mirrors each other. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I'll say this, that if you do this work off table, you will be ahead of 95% of the poker players out there. Absolutely. And it's not that hard. It's not. No. So thanks a lot, PJ. This has been awesome. I enjoy this every week. Oh, I did want to mention before we close, I will not be a part of the podcast in October. I am working a job that is going to take up too much of my time at the time. So we're going to have all sorts of interesting new voices. You know, it's up to him whether or not he wants to share who those guest hosts are going to be, but we're excited about it. And I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast without my voice. Yeah. Yeah. I can share three of them. One is confirmed, two are tentative. We will have Jordan Sweet, who is a coach at School of Cards, and we will be talking about creativity in poker. That's going to be a fantastic episode. We're going to talk about standards and deviations and adjusting and creativity. It's, it's going to be great. I'm going to have Molly from Sleep is a Skill podcast on the show. If you heard our episode, I think it was episode six or so, Your Health and Poker, we talked about how Molly helped transform my sleep. And by transforming my relationship with my sleep schedule and my sleep hygiene, I was able to take my life and my poker game to new levels. I'm excited to have her on the show. We will also have Blake Eastman, who is the founder of School of Cards, and we'll talk about that. And then I think we might have Sebastian Drolet-Poitrois again, who is on our podcast about becoming a professional poker player. It's going to be a good lineup. And then Dell will be joining us in November. So it's not like he's leaving the show. He's just going to be out of pocket for a month because work is just demanding that much time. But he'll be back. Yep. Thanks, Dell. Appreciate your time. This is a great podcast. Awesome. Thanks, PJ. You have a great day. You too. And until next week, this is The Blind Stealing the Blinds. Like what you heard? Head over to anchor.fm slash the blind stealing the blind to continue the conversation and join us on the socials. While you're there, you can also support the show. One blind per month is all we ask. 